Well, good morning, Movement Church. How is everybody doing this morning? I'm doing well. Man, I just so enjoy this opportunity. I know I say that often, uh, but please don't take it lightly. I mean that. I love that we get to hang out every week like this and just dive in and discover what what God's doing uh, in us and through us as a church and as individuals, how he is working in our families, how he is carrying some of us through some really difficult times and how he is uh, rejoicing right alongside of some of us uh, through some celebratory moments as well. We are back in this summer series on David. Um, we'll just dive in this morning. Last week, we left off in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, we saw David as he and his company of men brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of David. A few lessons that we learned there. It took them a couple of tries to get it right, but uh, we gleaned a few things uh, for our understanding. Today, we're just going to continue right on into the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible with you, or you've got a tablet or phone, pull that up, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, those of you joining us online, we'd love for you to do the same, to go ahead and pull that up. But as we're doing that, I've got a quick survey for everyone. Uh, you can only be one of these two people. So there should be full participation on this one this morning, okay? So everybody get your voting devices ready, okay? Everybody's got your voting devices ready. Here we go. Quick survey for you. How many of you in the room are the type <clears throat> that can just, uh, you can just sit? You know what I'm talking about? Like the weekend comes or you get a day off or something like that, and you have within you this, this amazing capacity to just flop down on the couch and do absolutely nothing. How many of you, that's you, you can do that. Ray, you, I know that's an effort for you to do that, but raise your, <laughs> raise your hand high. Let's get, now come on, stick them up in the air. Let's get a good, uh, you online, just type it in. Yeah, that's me, let us know. All right, now, here's the thing. On the flip side of that, how many of you, it makes your skin absolutely crawl that I would even dare to ask such a question? How many of you, that's you? <laughs> right, like your personal motto is, I need to do something. <laughs> yeah? Some of you in the room. That's, it's just your nature. It's who you are. I, I laugh about that because we used to tease my, my dad's mom, granny, as we called her. We used to tease her and call her. For those of you who have kind of grown up in the church, have some understanding. We used to call her Martha because like that's just, she just, she had to be going all the time. I have to do something. I'm so proud of my amazing wife for being transparent in the presence of these witnesses and God and saying that's her uh, because... She is incapable of just saying, I'm just going to sit. That's it. If, if there's not a plan uh, on the docket for the weekend, she will find something to do. And it breaks my heart because sometimes it turns into like, well, I'm just going to do extra laundry or mop, mop the floor or whatever it is. Uh, and I know y'all like, what does this have anything to do with anything that we've been talking about these past couple weeks? It actually, it's interesting because that, those who say, I got to do something. I have to, you know, I have to do it. That's kind of where we find David today in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Because what we've seen in David's life so far, let's just take just a brief inventory, not everything. 
But what we've seen in David's life is a sheep herder, a shepherd who, who tends to the sheep constantly. We've seen David kill bears. We've seen David chase lions and wrestle them. We've seen David slay giants. Uh, we've seen David uh, take care of a king and soothe uh, his, his hurting, wounded spirit by playing music and, and constructing these beautiful melodies and songs. We, we've seen David as a refugee on the run, in hiding, living in caves, living in borrowed cities. We've seen David go to war and now all of a sudden we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest. David finds himself in this moment saying well I'm living in my house. Some of y'all can immediately relate to this. Here I am. And it strikes David. He's not used to this. And so in that moment, he lands on, I've got to do something. I can't do it. I can't just sit here. I can't just, oh, I'm a king. Whoopee. I can't do that. I need to do something. And he lands on, I need to do something. So I'm going to do something for God. And that's what we see in the second verse. So the king, David, says to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the, for the Lord is with you. So David has this kind of settled moment. It, it, it drives him crazy, specifically he then has this response to, to the disparity between his living arrangements and, and the place where the very presence of God dwells. I'm in this house of cedar and God's presence is just hanging out in the tent. That this isn't okay. I need to do something. It's a response that, again, gives us this picture, this indication of David's continual desire to go after God's heart. In many ways, it's beautiful. And it's there. Right there in that spot, the heart of God, that we discover what God unlocks. That David discovers what God unlocks. That's what we're going to see today is that it is the heart of God. It's leaning into that, pressing into that, that unlocks some really beautiful and powerful and transformative things in our lives, just as was the case with David. And the first is this, that it's there in that place, the heart of God, that we see unlocked his plan. Now, I know you see that and you're like, this is what I came to church today for. Like I woke up and I got dressed and brushed my teeth and wrestled my rat nasty children and fought with my spouse all the way here because they always happen on Sunday mornings, don't they? And, and I came for the heart of God unlocks his plan. Just stick with me, okay? Because what we see transpire is David says, I live in a house of cedar. God's presence, the ark is in a tent. That's not right. 
And then Nathan responds, man, do it, do, do it. What's in your heart, go after it. But notice what happens right after this in verses 4 through 7. Let's take a look at this. It says, but that same night after this interaction with David and with Nathan, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? There's a question posed here all of a sudden. Kind of a, wait, hold on. We continue to read this. I have not lived, this is God speaking through Nathan, to Nathan at this moment. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people by saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So again, David comes to Nathan, shares this information. But then that night, God comes to Nathan in a dream in the middle of the night. And what we see is that after this exchange, I want to build God a house. You go for it. Go do it. God comes to Nathan and And what we discover is that Nathan has made a bit of a premature decision here. He he acted a touch in a hasty fashion by telling David, yo, man, that is fantastic. Go for it. Build a big old temple. Make it huge. Do it for God. Just, Just follow your heart. Do what's in your heart. And here's the thing. Nathan wasn't far off track because I heard a pastor share this once. Once Nathan just did what any good pastor does when a donor comes and says, I want to give you all the money to build a building. Lovely. Will that be cash or credit? Right? (laughs) Like that's just, I didn't say that. I heard a pastor say that. But Nathan in this moment, he, he, he rushes into this decision. And to be brutally honest, let's be honest, okay, gives the worst advice ever. The absolute worst advice you could ever give. Follow your heart. You ever had someone tell you that before? Just follow what's in your heart. And then six months later, you were like, they're an idiot. Because <laughs> it went horribly wrong. It went south. You know why? Because you should never follow your heart. Because even Jeremiah the prophet says this, that the heart is a fickle thing. It's full of deceit. It, it, it leads you down paths that feel right, but aren't necessarily for your best. And so Nathan, in this moment, the mouthpiece of God says, do whatever is in your heart. I'm encouraged by this. And let me tell you why. J.C. Ryle, the great uh, preacher, theologian, author, Uh, English uh, bishop, he said this, he wrote this on one occasion about this very exchange. And it's an encouragement to me. It's an encouragement to me to see this transpire in Nathan's life because the best of men are only men at their very best. The best of men, be it your, your husband, be it your father, but maybe it's your son, It's probably not your pastor, but but the best of men are still only men. 
patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans are all sinners who need a savior. And so here we see with Nathan, he makes this whoopsie. And as a result comes the corrective word of God. As a result comes the corrective word of God. Now we oftentimes hear that word correction and it makes us shudder just a little bit, right? Because we hear correction and our tendency is to immediately connect correction with discipline. So some sort of result of that, perhaps even to a harsh degree when we hear the word correction or to, to be corrected. But here's what we need to catch going on in this passage. When we're seeking to align with God's heart, when we're seeking to be in step with him, what we need to realize is that there are times that that corrective word comes, hear me, and it's not as much about discipline as it is clarity. It's not to say, oh, you're so wrong, how dare you? Now, don't get me wrong. We all need a good thunk on the head from God every now and then, don't we? Hey, dummy, thump right on the head. But that's not always the case, especially when we're pressing in to God's heart. At times, it's more about clarity than it is the disciplinary action. You may say, I I don't really follow. How do we know that that's the case? Because we have two separate occasions, two separate records, one in 1 Kings chapter 8, the other in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that both record what God said to David about this exchange. And catch this. God says to David, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that that was in your heart. So God is not saying, how dare you, David? I cannot believe that you would do something. It's more of a, hey, David, I love that that's what's in you. I love that that's what's going on in your heart. I love that that's how you're processing. I love that that's how you honor me and revere me. So the word of the Lord through Nathan to David was about this loving clarity that was being brought. Not, Not so much of a... Smack on the hand. And immediately as I was studying through this passage and jotting down some of these notes, uh, something came to my mind that we just happened to have that I was like, yes, that's a good picture of it. So they're going to crank up the volume so that you can make sure to hear these little voices. But we got a video for you to watch and to kind of set it up. It's my two kids, one that's off screen that you can't hear, uh, the, the other one on screen, my two youngest ones when they were little. So catch this. Listen to the exchange here. Go ahead, guys. Now, again, just in case you didn't catch it, what's transpiring there is Karis is a few steps back with Michelle's mom, with Graham's, and they're walking along, and Canaan's pulling his wagon. They were headed to the playground. And Karis, who apparently came out of the womb with some kind of Southern Bale accent, Canaan, don't get too far away. You're getting too far away. 
Uh, it's still there a little bit, but not so much now that she's older. But they were walking along and Cana was taking these steps. And cares, now, now catch this. This is the picture. Not so much from a slightly overprotective, maybe a little bossy sister, but from a loving father that God was saying, David, don't get too far ahead of me. Don't get too far away. I, I love that you're trying to move forward, but, but I need you to stay in step with me. I don't want you to rush this thing. I do love that that's what's in your heart. But, but David, th this isn't necessarily about the thing you want to do. This is about the thing that I will do. Stay, stay with my timing. It's that reminder to us that God's plan will always prevail. It's why we read in Proverbs 19, 21. Who wrote Proverbs. Y'all have had this test question four times throughout this series. Four times. It's not a pop quiz anymore. You should get this one right. Okay. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. Solomon. There it is. See, you knew it, but you're like, I don't want to participate. And that's not how we roll here. <laughs> Solomon wrote Proverbs and Solomon's father was? Exactly. There we go. It's why Solomon writes in Proverbs 19.21 that many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the Lord's plan that will stand. Amen. It's not that it's bad what was in there. Just maybe it wasn't time. Maybe it wasn't for us to do. Maybe we were rushing just to touch. So it's there that we truly unlock his plan. Secondly, it's the heart of God that unlocks his peace. This is powerful. God offers David a reminder here, a reassurance of one simple fact. It was never about what he could do for God, but what God had done. It was never about what David could do for God, but what God and God alone had done by his hand. By his work in his people and in the earth. And so he instructs David through this prophetic word, first of all, to, to find peace, to find comfort, that it's not about our striving, it's not about our ability, it's not about working something up for God. He says, No, I want you to find peace, and to do so, I want you to just look around at what I've done for my people. That's what we see laid out here. Look around at what I've done for my people. He doesn't just come and, and say, David, no, you're not going to do that. I don't need you to do that. He comes in and says, would you build a house for me? I think you've forgotten something here. I'm the one that does the work. We read in verse 6, God says, I have not lived in a house since the day, what? I brought up the people out of their bondage, out of Egypt. He's saying, David, remember, I did that. That was my work. It wasn't something Moses accomplished. It wasn't something Moses and Aaron accomplished or Moses and Aaron and Miriam accomplished. No, no, no. I brought those people up out of their bondage and out of Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. He goes on. Look at this in verse 10. And I will appoint what? A place or a dwelling for who? 
my people. He says, I want you to look around at the history of my people and I want you to find some peace that it's not about what you can accomplish, what you can do. He was instructing Nathan to share this with David all about how he and he alone worked by saying, look around. Now, I will confess, I'm guilty of struggling with this at times. When I say at times, it's not like some old story of like five, six, ten years ago. It's last Sunday. Correction. It's this morning in the first service that I actually walked away struggling with this. It, it'll go like this oftentimes. We'll hop in the car to go grab a bite to eat. Or we'll go home and I'll flop down on the couch and settle in because I can do nothing. I am one of those. Uh, I'll flop down on the couch on a Sunday afternoon and Michelle will sit beside me and I'll drift right into it immediately. Man, I wanted, I really wanted to do this and I wish, I wish I had said this and I didn't say that right. I should have said it better and I really shouldn't have said that. And, and I, just, I just messed it up and she will lovingly, Mama Seats will lovingly and patiently interrupt me every single time. And she will say, hey, hey, kind of a, hey, look at me. And then she'll proceed to say, Nate, Jesus saved six people this morning who crossed from death into life. She'll look at me and she'll say, hey, 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 Jesus walked nine people through the waters of baptism who made their faith public this morning. She'll say, Nate, 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 Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowered people to invite their friends to come and know Jesus, love others, and live changed. Nate, sweetie, God moved. He did what only he can do. And it's in those moments... It's in those moments that an overwhelming peace will come as I go, it was never about me. It was never about me messing up. It was never about me hitting a home run. It was never about me getting right because it's not about what I can do for him. However, if we will all simply say with sincerity and passion, I want to go after God's heart. He will build his people. He will build his church. He will take care of all those details. That's what's so beautiful about this word to David. Look around at what I've done to my people. David, find peace. It's not about what you can do, he said. He didn't just say, look around at what I've done through my people. This is what I love. Look within at what I've done for you. Look within at what I've done for you. Catch this in verse 8 and 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took what? God doesn't just care about people. He cares about the person. He's always been after his people. But his people are made up of persons. He doesn't just say, look around at what I've done with people. He says, look at what I've done in 
you from the pasture. I took you from the pasture. Not your sling and your stone. I took you from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. See, sometimes the most powerful moments in our walk do not come in the midst of our activity for God, but in our stillness with God. Where we just pause. And instead of becoming so consumed by the next thing, the next thing we need to do for him, instead we simply stop and say, wow, you have brought me a long way. I love these words from uh, poet and author Ralph Waldo Emerson. There, there's more to this quote that's beautiful, but I love just these first few words. If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore? It's not necessarily a statement about faith from Emerson. There, there's more to it that alludes to faith. But, but the essence of this statement is this. Paul If the stars only appeared once in a thousand years, how much more settled would we become to gaze upon their beauty? If we realized what a treasure they are, how quickly would we just slow down and fix our eyes and marvel? God was saying to David, and I believe that we too can hear this. Don't you realize that the story he's weaving through your life is a vast open sky filled with the stars of the stories that he's written in you? What if we would just pause to gaze upon the sky of our soul and realize what he's already done. David came to a place where he fully understood and we too should understand. It has never been about what we can do for him, but what he has done for us, which takes us to this next point. The heart of God unlocks his plan, his peace, and his promise. This is amazing. As we continue through this, David comes, sincerity, I want to build a house for God. It's not fair that I live in a house of cedar, he lives in a tent. Nathan says, go for it. God says, whoa, don't get ahead of me. Slow down. This is about my plan, my timing. He says, and here's where you can find comfort. I'm always the one who has done the work. I always make it happen. I always achieve it. And it doesn't stop there. It continues because at this moment in this interaction, God moves from, that's what I've done, comma. But wait till you see what's next. He says, look around, look within, remember the goodness 
the moving of my hand, but you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what happens in this interaction. Have you ever had one of those moments where the, where the good just keeps coming? We've all had the moments where the bad just keeps coming, amen? And we're like, are you kidding me? You gotta be kidding me. But have you ever had those moments where the good just keeps coming? And you find yourself going, wait, what? What, what? It just keeps, I think of it this way. How many of you have ever heard of or seen the, the TV show that was on for years called Undercover Boss? You ever see that one? The premise of it is pretty simple. They did it with a lot of uh, large companies, corporations, uh, Great Wolf Lodge, Diamond Resorts, uh, Fast Signs, US Cellular, Build-A-Bear, on and on and on the list goes, that they would do this. And what they would do is they would have the CEO of these companies come in in disguise and do the work of the people that worked in these companies. Um, clearly their wig budget wasn't great. I'm not sure what that's all about, but they would, have, <laughs> they would have them come in and do the work of several different employees, interact with them, hang out with them. And then after it was all said and done, they would bring in a couple of these really deserving employees that just stood out and have an interaction with them. And one of the episodes uh, that I, I went back and glanced at actually just uh, two weeks ago and I was watching it, one of these episodes was with the CEO of a company called Foreman Mills. And the CEO brings in this, this woman who works there, sits her down. And of course, they have that initial shock of, oh, I was working alongside of you and you're the CEO of the entire company. So there's already that initial hit. But in this interaction, he sat this young lady down and spoke with her. And he said, I just want you to know you are a phenomenal employee. And she's like, wait, what? The CEO of the company is saying, I'm doing a good job. I just want you to know the way that you treated customers and interact with, it blew me away. Wait, what? And he says, and so because of that, I wanted to let you know, we're going to give you a promotion to a brand new position. She's blown away. What? Are you kidding me? Wait, what are you? This is amazing. Thank you so much. And she's like ready to walk out the room. He goes, oh, and I wanted to let you know as well that, that with this new promotion, you're also going to get a raise of $25,000 more a year. At this point, she's on the verge of tears. How many of you want to go on Undercover Boss now, right? Uh, so th this, this happens. He says, I want to give you a $25,000 pay raise. She just says, What? She says, thank you so much. This will mean the world to my family. He's like, that's right. You have kids, don't you? She's like, I do. We don't get to spend as much time as we want to together, but I'm just, this means everything. He goes, that's right. I do remember that. You, you've got several kids, don't you? She was like, yes. He said, actually, uh, I also want to give you an all expenses, two week paid vacation. She says, what? That's all she can come up with. She says, thank you so much. My, my oldest son's getting ready to go off to college and, and this will just be so great for us to have one last uh, time together. He goes, that's right. I had that in my notes that your oldest son was going off to college. He said, I wanted to let you know we've decided to fully fund the next four years of your son's college. And she's just like wrecked at this point. All she can say is, wait, what? What? David is about to have the most significant 
wait what moment of his entire life. Like, Nate, he slayed a giant. This is bigger. Hey, he's the king. This is bigger. In fact, not only is it the biggest wait what moment of David's entire life, it is the most significant wait what moment in the entirety of human history. Because what takes place in the next several verses is this. God says to David in verse 9, verse 9b, he says, I will make for you a great name. Wait, what? Verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to build me a temple, a house for my presence. But I want you to know I'm going to make you a house. And notice how it's worded. Not that I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to make you a house. All of a sudden, David's hearing words that would have been significantly understood as dynasty. Like this is bigger than just this moment. But the word of the Lord continues. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're gone from this earth, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Wow. This is, this is going to keep going. My bloodline is going to keep going here. This is where it gets fun. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom what? what? forever underline highlight circle three times exclamation point what we have here a lot is happening here but what we have is now an Old Testament prophecy from God through Nathan to David. And what's fascinating, as is the case with most Old Testament prophecies, these words have what we call a dual fulfillment purpose. In one sense, this word is fulfilled in the short, the short term. In another sense, the long. In the in the short term, the first fulfillment came through David's son, Solomon. He did, in fact, become the next king. And it was Solomon who would end up building that very temple that David had desired to build, had expressed his desire to build for the Lord, for God's presence. And under Solomon, catch this, David's kingdom would grow and thrive in ways that far exceeded what David got to witness in his time on the earth. It's so much so that it was never like that before. And honestly, in an earthly sense, was never like that again in the nation of Israel. But, and this is huge, Solomon also made some pretty significant, unfortunate, sinful mistakes. This guy had 700 wives. He's an idiot. What? Like if I get to hang out with Solomon in heaven, I'm going to be like, what were you thinking? <laughs> Had 700 wives. But here's the real kicker. Of those 700 wives, most of them, a good number of them, came from foreign nations and clans. And as a result, he even began 
to post their idols and start worshiping some of their idols from these other countries. Hence the reason for verse 14, where it says that that this son that would come, he would be disciplined by God. That's why there was that type of correction in Solomon's life. But, but, it's the repeated use of these few words, his kingdom forever, repeated three separate times in this prophecy. It's the use of those words, the last of which we see in verse 16, that should catch our attention. And your house, your kingdom shall be made sure, say it with me, forever before me. Your throne shall be established, one last time, forever. About 930 years after Solomon, another son was born. In fact, that son was born in the very hometown of David himself. The city of Bethlehem. And that son would become the embodiment of the house that God built. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Please tell me that gives you some Holy Ghost chills. While God was solidifying this covenant of an earthly kingdom with David. In this moment, in one of the rare occasions throughout Scripture, God was not just writing to the person in the moment. He was writing to us. This was a foreshadowing of a coming kingdom, a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And Jesus would be the eternal king that God had promised. He would not only become that, but he would be the very temple. That's why he said things like in John chapter 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about something built by the hands of man. He was saying, I am the temple. I am the king. I am the fulfillment of the covenant that was made with David some 930 years before. And that's the promise to us, a covenant of grace and goodness that is extended not just to David, but to all of us. If we will stand and kneel then before the cross of Jesus Christ and say, you are the son of David. You are the living God. And I confess that I am broken and sinful and I can no longer do this in and of myself. I come to you and I say, you are king. That was the hope. And so we close with this and then I'm done, I promise. Maybe. The heart of God unlocks his plan, his purpose. It unlocks his peace and his comfort, relieving us from the strain and the the strife, the effort-driven Christianity that so many of us have clung to since we were children. It unlocks his promise, but the, the really beautiful part is it unlocks our praise. A praise that is distinctly marked in two ways. First, by humility. I want to build you a house, God. David, it's not about what you can do for me. 
It's about what I've done for you, and it's about what I'm going to do through generations and what I'm going to do for all mankind, born out of your heart for me. And David's only response was praise marked by humility. Who am I? Would that the church would return to this form of praise instead of the look at me version. Would that the church would simply stand before a holy God with hands lifted and say, why are you so good to me? Even when everything seems so bad, you are good. And who am I? Who am I that you would be mindful of me? Who am I, O oh Lord God, and what is my house that you have even brought me to this point? You know, it's funny sometimes how in our walk with God, we're like, God, this isn't fair. No, it's not fair is that he's brought you as far as he has. If he doesn't take you another step further, you've already been blessed and highly favored. So shut up in Jesus' name. <laughs> David connects all of the dots in this moment, coming to a place of recognition that the God who brought his people out of bondage, the God who had walked with him through valleys and into victory, was again at work. And the only appropriate response was, who am I? He goes on in verse 19 to say this, I love this, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. You ever remember that moment where your kid comes to you and something that is like astronomically the end of the world has happened? Whether it was something that was broken, a relationship that was just all out of whack. And then you say one thing or do one thing and all of a sudden they're like, how'd you fix that? Small thing. David said, I, I, I just, I forget how big you really are. It's a praise marked by that kind of humility. Great humility, but even greater honor. I love these words. Verse 21. David says, because of your promise and according to your own heart. You see this? The interaction moves from David do what's in your heart and closes with David praising and saying, I want to do what's according to your heart, God. According to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant Know it and listen to this. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our own ears. And so I will praise you. Amen. It's not about me figuring out what I can do for you. I'm just going to praise you for everything you've done for me. And if you don't do anything else, I got plenty to praise you for. In the mid-1600s, uh, a group of uh, theologians and scholars and church leaders were gathered together, known as the Westminster Assembly of the Divines. And the Westminster Assembly of the Divines, some of you may be familiar, but they, they had many functions, multiple objectives. But one of the results of their gathering together was 
the development and the release of what is now known as the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're not familiar with it, the catechism, the shorter catechism specifically, is 107 questions and answers solely based out of scripture. That was the reason they came together, was to get the church back on track and back to the word of God instead of opinions. And I'm not going to preach that, not today. 107 questions and then scripturally based answers. The purpose of which was to allow both adults and specifically children in their formative years, to more fully understand the faith. 107 questions. I'll be honest with you. In the church today, I'm not sure some of us could answer seven. Was that offensive? I'll go home and regret saying it later, okay? 107 questions and answers to take people deeper in their faith and an understanding of the faith. The very first question, what is the chief end of man? God, why am I here? God, what's my purpose? God, I just, I don't even understand why I exist. And with several dozen scriptures, The answer to the very first question, what is the chief end of man, came this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. But I want to know my purpose. There is no your purpose. There's his purpose achieved through you. You don't have a purpose unless you have this. Then you have the greatest purpose that history has ever known. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because at its core, our faith is not about doing things for God. It's about what he's done for us and our response. Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to come together as your church to find hope and purpose in you. And Lord, as we leave from this place today, we pray as humbly as we can that you would keep our eyes fixed on this truth. It's never been about what we can do for you. It's always been about what you've done for us. Now we just respond. And maybe you're in this room today and the response you need to make is for the first time to come before the son of David, Jesus Christ, And say, I am a sinner who needs to be forgiven. And today, I want to give my life to him and follow him as Savior and Lord. Maybe you need this morning to simply pray, Jesus, forgive me my sins. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to set me free. And I accept that beautiful gift today. 
and ask you to strengthen me to follow you from this day forward. If that's you and you're in this room or you're joining us online, we want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. And I'd ask you, if you're in this place, in this room gathered together, and you say, Nay, I want to begin that relationship with Jesus today that you just talked about. I want forgiveness of my sins, and I want to follow him from this day forward. Will you just slip your hand up beside your head so that I can pray for you this morning? Amen. Amen. Make sure I see you. Just give me a little wave just so that I can pray for you and pray with you. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praying for several of you this morning. Same for you online. They'll give you a way that you can do that as well. But I want to encourage you as we leave from here today, if that's you, don't leave without talking to somebody about next steps in your faith. There'll even be a way right here on the screen that you can at the very least text us and say, I said yes to Jesus today. But Lord, we just want to thank you humbly and with great honor. There is none like you. And so we leave this place with praise on our lips and purpose in our hearts because of you. In Jesus' name, amen.